clock. Go ahead and hit the clock. Okay, thank you very much. Um, uh, I want to welcome you to something that's ongoing, and that is 21 days of prayer. Okay? So 21 days of prayer is this thing that we've said, we did this, started this two weeks ago, and what we said was is, what do you most need God to rescue you from? What's the thing in your life that is the number one thing, just the one thing, there's gonna be more than one in a lot of people's lives, but what's the number one thing that God is laying on your heart that you need to be rescued from, right? From which you need to be rescued, to say that more properly. But the bottom line is, is that's what we're doing for 21 days. And the reason why we're doing that is because we are on this journey with the disciples down around Samaria, but on the edge and doing stuff. And then we're headed, we're just right before Jericho there, right before the final entry into Jerusalem from Jericho. These are only miles apart, you understand. This is like from here to Redmond, away, okay? We're not talking a long distance because it's walking and so on. But the bottom line is, is that we're coming down into Jerusalem. So the things that God is saying are these most important things. They don't know that he's going to die, even though he's told them. These are the things that God wants resonating in their hearts, right? At this very end. And what he did last week was he turned to prayer. So at the very end of his life, he's saying, I want you to pray, but I just don't want, it's not a generic, I want you to pray. He goes into a very specific thing. I want you to pray a certain way. Now listen to what he says. One, this, is, this was a sermon from two weeks ago, so we're not doing it again. But one day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him and repeatedly saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman's driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she's wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant them justice quickly. Right? So this is, he's telling us, be this persistent widow, be this persistent prayer. But then he ends it with a funky thing. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on earth who have faith? And what we learned two weeks ago was, when we looked at that, what we learned was this. God has given us free will. And he has said, my will is, to an extraordinary degree, going to be done because you want it to be done. If you don't want it to be done, I gave you free will, and I'm not going to do it. If you do want it to be done, then I'm going to do it. But you have to make a choice. A, do you know what it is that God is wanting? And B, will you bug him about it? Will you persistently, passionately pray about it? Now look at the phrasing of the way he says this. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? I want you to understand that he has phrased this in a way so as to communicate that the obvious answer is not many. That's what he's saying. He's saying, how many is he going to find? He's hoping that there'll be a lot. 
but he's also understanding that human nature is such. How many are going to be here? Now, that is particularly true in America today. As I've always said, nothing is harder to survive in God than prosperity. Adversity, we cry out to him like crazy, and we pray out passionately, and we bug him for justice, right? To deliver. But when you get comfortable, you don't really need God. And so you figure out how to live the life that you want and have God part of it. And in so doing, what we end up doing is we pray a lot for the things we want that have to do with the cares of the world, as Vijay said so beautifully last week. But what we don't have in our hearts, what we don't have beating in our hearts, what we don't have bleeding in our hearts is what God wants us to pray for, what God wants to do and why. Because we're off somewhere else. That's what's in those words. <laughs> That's tough. So what we did is, is we turned to another person, Daniel. And the reason that we have a 21 days of prayer thing is because here's what Daniel did. There was the northern tribes 10, the southern tribes 2, the northern tribes are taken away, now there's the southern 2 tribes, and they get taken away. And suddenly, for all intents and purposes, there is no more Israel, Judah or Israel or anything. There is no more nation. There's an outpost of Babylonian control that's where Israel used to be. And so Daniel is saying, wait a minute, God, what about all these promises? There's all these promises that you gave to us about what was going to happen and how and when and where and all this stuff. And what the heck? How's that going to happen? So Daniel goes to fasting and praying to being this person who is bugging God, who's pleading with God, who cares about what God cares about. Because God said he was going to do something. Now the question is, do we want it? And Daniel's saying, I want it. And yes, indeed, he was withstood 21 days, the person that was coming to give him an answer. But after 21 days of faithful, passionate prayer, God shows up and tells him what's going on, and then does it, returns them miraculously 70 years later to the land, and now there's an Israel that Jesus was born into and promises kept. You see it? So this is what we're doing. We took it from Daniel, and we're saying, for 21 days, we want to go after something. Now watch. According to, this, according to the passion of the first prayer, we're not going after world peace, which is not just the Miss America prayer, but it's kind of God's prayer. We're actually going after, we're starting with us. We're starting with what's the thing that you need God to rescue from most? Because I think what has happened in the world is we don't really know who God is anymore. Not really. We have some understanding, but it's greatly polluted with a lot of other things, including, as the word said earlier, disappointment. I want to believe God for something, but I believed him for something before, and it didn't work out, and now what do I do? So I'm just going to trust that he's got it all in his hands. But what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to be somebody who's going to stand on something and pray for it with passion, with faith. See? I'm just going to say, well, you got it, and I trust you, but oh well. When what God's asking is to do something quite different than that. So look where God's starting with his disciples and with us. He's saying, what do you need most? Ultimately, he's going to get us to where what he needs most. But he's going to teach us about who he is first because it's not until we know who he is that we'll know what his heart is beating with, what his heart is bleeding for. You see it? So that's a very kind thing of God to do, to let us go to the thing we need most first. 
And then here's what he's going to do. He's going to take that idea and he's going to take it to the next level. And the next level is going to be this. I want to show you the most simple, easy, awesome, passionate prayer you could imagine. See, when we say you got to pray for something, here's what we think in our heads. If I don't pray for an hour and a half for it, I didn't put in enough time and there's no possibility that God will actually listen to it because I'm not being whatever I need to be in order to get the answer to that prayer. See, I didn't put in enough change into the vending machine to get my prize back. But what if God was saying, it never is about how much time or how much of your effort you put into it. It's about something entirely different. What if God is saying, there's this thing that you do all the time just in yourselves and I'm going to teach you how to do that and then I'm going to teach you how to end up praying for me with the passion that I'm asking you to pray with, with the faith that I'm asking to be in the earth when I return. And it turns out to be just so simple and easy and natural and normal. Nothing religious about it. Something incredibly human about it. Does that sound like a good trade? Does that sound like he, he answers the prayer that you need most and then it, what it teaches you to do is to start standing in the gap for all kinds of things in this completely natural way. I hope it does. In Jesus' name, we're going to have Greg Thatcher who is, Greg, you really are magnificent. You really are a pillar in here. I don't, as I'm saying this, I just, I'm just realizing the degree to which you're enthusiasm and your encouragement to me, to others, the worship that you do, everything that you do, you just bring the joy of the Lord. What a wonderful thing. Pray for this sermon, would you? Lift up another church too. Father, it is our privilege, and God, it is, it is humbling that we get to speak with you. You have removed our sin because of the blood of Jesus, and now, God, we can enter the throne, throne room, Lord, to ask you things, to petition you, Lord, as your children, not as slaves, but as your kids. So, Lord, this morning, in Jesus' name, speak through Kurt. Lord, um, level places in our lives that we've built up. Have your spirit come. Speak to us, Lord, in the inner recess of our heart so we can respond to you, not just to hear it, God, but to respond to you and obey you. God, number one, not to try to interpret it in any way, but, Lord, to obey you of what you've said. Amen. Lord, would you also bless the church in Uganda that my friend Karen Grubbs is involved in. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, break down those walls. God, break down those things that um, are keeping those tribes away from each other. And, Lord, that you would unite them in you. Lord, unite the church in you because of what Karen is doing there in Sudan and Uganda and, Lord, in those other places. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name for the church at large in the world, those that you have called by your name, to be faithful to you, to speak up, Lord, to be a light. Help us to do that very same thing. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Great prayer, Greg. Now, there's a, there's a principle in science called heuristic value. And what it simply means is, is that when you have a theory and then you test it and it turns out to actually be true, it doesn't just answer the question that you were trying to answer. The truth of it begins to answer a whole bunch of questions too. A whole bunch of other questions, right? Heuristic value. Last week, we had a sermon that probably had as much heuristic value as any sermon that's ever been preached in this building. I said after the sermon, I believe it with all my heart. It was one of the most important words that's ever been spoken from this platform. 
or the one back in, in at one, where that was, 172nd. VJ gave it. There were a lot of people gone, and because it's foundational for what we're doing today, I'm going to take about 10 minutes, and I'm going to recap what he said. Because it isn't just for today. You're going to find that this has heuristic value in everything. The thing I'm using it for is not what he was preaching about, but what he was preaching about, it answered this question too. In a way, I didn't even know until Tuesday when I was praying to the Lord. And all of a sudden he said, well, think about what Vijay said. And I went, oh my gosh, that's exactly the same thing, isn't it? So watch. I want you to watch this. And I'm going to, with deference and for asking forgiveness for shortening too much what you did, I want you to see something. This is the route of the Exodus when the Jews... Abraham has been called out of Ur, and he goes into Jerusalem, to Israel, which is, where's the red button? I'm afraid to push anything. There. Okay. See this? See, there's Jerusalem. See it up there by number 18 up here? Canaan. That's also, Canaan is Israel. And it goes up here, and Ur is way over here. And Abraham comes into here, and then there's a famine, and because of Joseph, they end up down in Egypt, and they start off in great favor but they end in slavery and bondage. They cannot escape. They're now the slaves of the Egyptians, okay? And then God comes to Moses and he says, I'm gonna set, let my people go who are doing what, by the way? Pleading like the person. They're pleading for him to deliver them from this slavery and from the hardness of it. It's getting harder and harder and worse and worse. So they're praying for that deliverance. And what happens is, is that they lead out here. Now, it would have been really smart for them to go straight through this little part here where there's no water. There's some water there, but it's not very large. It would have been really smart for them to go through there, but instead they do this really dumb thing, which is they go down to here. You see how they get locked down in here? Because what happens is once they get past the point of no return, these people decide, oh, we think we shouldn't let them go after all. They start coming after them, and now they are deadlocked. They can go down in here into the desert where they're going to die, or they can do what? <laughs> they can't go back because they're going to get killed and they can't go down. And there isn't any way for them to go anywhere until what? The Red Sea. Now, what I want you to understand about all of this is this entire journey from, from Red Sea down here to Mount Sinai, up here to where they send the spies in, and then the 40 years of wilderness journey, all of this stuff here, all of this is spoken in the Bible as a type meaning an example of, meaning a model of what salvation is supposed to be. So we see the type really easily in the first part of it. But what Vijay pointed out last week, which is one of the things that makes it so important, is there's two moments to salvation. The first one is the Red Sea. That's the one we all know and think about. But there's another one that's just as important and is what God intended and so what happens is salvation, we see it real clearly when we get down to the Red Sea, and what happens, right? They literally go through the Red Sea. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with waters like a wall to them on the right and the left. There are some scholars, it just cracks me up how scholars just will not believe in God. But the point is, is they'll say, well, there's this reed sea, and it was misprint. And so they waded through a marsh. Well, two things. It says there was dry ground, so it wasn't a marsh. And two, there were walls of water, okay? It was like, what the heck is happening here? Walls of water so bad that when, the, that when the Egyptian army went into them and the walls collapsed, they all died. This wasn't that they got bogged down in the marsh, 
and then didn't know how to swim in two-inch water, okay? So the bottom line is they go down to the Red Sea, and they go across it, and the image here is perfectly baptism, isn't it? In baptism, there's two symbolisms. One is you are dying in Christ. You join Christ, and you go into the grave with him. So you go down in the grave. Look, when they're going down into the sea, see, they're going down into the grave, and then they're walking across, but then they're also being cleansed from their sin because the penalty for sin is death, and that sin has been paid in the death that was happening down when, you, when Jesus did that. So he's taking our sin upon himself. That's what he is as our savior, right? But the bottom line, the imagery of baptism is you go down into that death, you get cleansed of your sins, and then you rise again. See it? Now that's salvation. And everybody who hears that and has experienced that says, yep, that's salvation, right? Here's what we don't factor in. This is what Vijay brought up. What we don't factor in is that there's more to it. They go down to Mount Sinai, which is down here, okay, sorry, down here, and that's where they come into God's presence, right? What is another part of salvation? The Holy Spirit living in you, the Holy Spirit with you, relationship with God. They enter into God down here at Mount Sinai, right? And then they come out of that, or they come away from that. They come up here, they go up here, and they get right here to uh, Kadesh. And at Kadesh, Kadesh, okay, when they get to here, what happens is they send 10 spies up into Canaan, straight up, real easy, Right? And all 12, they send 12 spies, excuse me, one from each tribe. 10 of them come, they all come back and they all say the same thing. Oh my gosh, awesome. It is land of milk and honey like he said. The grapes, the bunches of grapes are so big, they have to put a pole between two people and hang the grapes over the poles. That's how rich and fertile and wonderful this place is. Land of milk and honey for sure. But then, 10 of them said, but there's a problem there's giants in there and there's no way we're going to beat them so we're not going to be able to take this now two of them joshua and caleb joshua the son of nun and caleb the son of i will not butcher it who were among those who scout out at the land look what they did tore their clothes and said to the entire israelite community the land we passed through and explored is an extremely good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord. Don't be afraid of the people of the land. We will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid. Trust God. Have faith. Know who he is. Right? and enter into who he is so that you do what he's asking you to do. Now, how did the other people respond to this? Well, the whole community, well, the whole community threatened to stone them. <laughs> Great reaction, right? The glory of the Lord intervened. <laughs> he appeared to all the Israelites at the tent of the meeting, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people despise me, not know me? How long will they not trust in me despite 10 plagues and like that Red Sea thing. 
How long are they going to do this? I will strike them with a plague and destroy them, and I'll make you into a greater and mightier nation than they are. Just a little sidebar. It's the second time God has said that to Moses. One of the reasons why Moses is so important in history is because, as God himself testified about him, he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. And two times, God said, I'm going to go strike them. And Moses got in his way and said, no. Raise up a bunch of me's, and I'm no different than them. He interceded, which is what Christ does for us. See, we should be getting it, but we don't. So even now, Christ sits at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us. See it? So beautiful, right? But the bottom line is, and this is where the, this is where the, for every young man that's listening to me and is struggling, for every man who's listening to me and is struggling with any kind of sexual sin, listen really carefully right now. For every woman who is struggling with anything else, and there are plenty of things that women struggle with too. Listen really carefully. Because this insight that VJ gave last week is critical to you walking into the things that God wants you to walk into. He points out that Hebrews says, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, meaning these people. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those that heard it. Here's what he's saying. They didn't believe the promises. God said, I'm going to bring you into this land and give it to you forever, and they didn't believe it. And so when they saw the giants, what did they do? Said, there's no way that we can take this. And so where did they end? That generation, wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years until all of them died. Now, I just want to tell you, there's a lot of Christians that got delivered from the bondage that they were in. Got to a place where they were to believe and trust something, God, and really who he really was, and what he was really doing. And they didn't quite trust him because it was disappointed, the word, or because of a whole lot of different things, or they're just their own failures or whatever. And they quit believing that God's promises were going to happen in their life. And so they've entered into a Christianity which is not victorious, which is not the promises of holiness, which is not the promises of overcoming. Now, here's the, here was what VJ did in order to really bring this home. He told us a little, a little dream that he'd had where there was people and there was this thing behind that everybody wanted to get into. And there was a gatekeeper. And what happened was the guy, he was second in line. The guy right before him was a person that was trying to get into that thing by doing it in his own effort. This is Galatians and Colossians, right? Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You know what I mean? You started this thing in the spirit. Are you now so foolish as to think you can complete it in the flesh? Could you? Could you get across the Red Sea because of your strength? Could you have saved yourself in Christ because of you? What did you do? What did you do when you got saved? Was it something you did? Or did you just simply believe that God could do a miracle and get you through the Red Sea and get you delivered from the bondage and life that you were in and make you a new creature? You heard that and you believed. And so it was faith that got you there. And now that you're here on the other side of that Red Sea, on the other side of salvation, you look back and you say, well, this is wonderful and obvious and now I totally get it and it's absolutely true and I'm, I'm here, see? But you do have to understand that for a moment there, there really was a belief <laughs> that was in play. And it wasn't because of your unbelief, but there had to be belief in you who would believe in their hearts 
that he is Lord and been raised from the dead. See? So you believed. So this guy in front of him in the line is somebody who's trying to finish his Galatians and Colossians is what he used. That was trying to get in their own strength. And this person had been disfigured from all of their own self-works. They had tried so hard to get in there that it, that it made them grotesque in who God intended them to be. Their works, their effort made them grotesque. And the guy didn't get in. And so he's sent away, and then the gatekeeper comes to VJ. And VJ's going, well, I know what not to do. I know it's not in my strength that I can get in there. So I just love this, and sorry. But what he did was he went, you know, I'm supposed to be like flying in God. I'm supposed to be, God is supposed to be doing this thing in me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stand on one foot. Because, because I'm going to, I can't do it anymore. I used to ski, and I could stay there for 20 minutes, and now I can't do it for two seconds. But, but he, what he said was, he said, I'm going to lift the one foot like I'm flying. See, I'm flying. See, I'm off the ground. See? See? I know I'm not supposed to do my works in self-righteousness, but I'm going to, but, but see, I'm lifted up in God. And as he was doing that, suddenly he got this revelation that you can't fly. <laughs> you cannot fly. But God can make you fly. You cannot walk on water, but God can make you walk on water. You cannot save yourself, but God can save you. You cannot enter into the promises of God. You cannot, but God can. And as soon as he realized that, he said, I started to fly. I was lifted up in the air, and I was brought into this incredible place, and I flew around the whole place, and I saw the most glorious truths and things of God. How beautiful is that? I mean, I'm telling you, start doing this in your life. In the things in which you have been defeated in, start thinking this way. Start believing the promises, not your failures. Start believing the God who can deliver, not your inability to complete. He who authored it will be faithful to complete it. He who begun it will perfect it. Right? Start believing the promises. I just believe that you get me there. Watch what happens. It's extraordinary. I can tell you from his sermon, it's already made a difference in my life, which is something he's wanted me to understand now for years, so thanks for not letting up. Now, here's what the application is for today. I'm out on my walk on Tuesday morning, and I'm, talk, and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, you know, we're down here, and I'm, and I'm realizing that that there's this thing that's, you know, I, I read a book about prayer and I thought, well, I'm going to come in and talk to us about how to pray. And I have to say, you should thank God right now for not having me do that. Okay? Because it would have saddled you down with yet another bunch of requirements. It would not have set you free like God is about to do. Okay? In prayer. So thank you, God. But I'm out there and I'm thinking about it and I'm realizing there's just no life in it. And I'm even thinking to myself because I, I remembered that I had read the next section a few weeks ago and that I, I didn't think it had anything to do with prayer, which is totally stupid of me because it did. But the point is, is I'm sitting there kind of praying and trying to find the sermon and I can't get it. And the Lord is saying, read the next section. I'm going, no, because I got to talk about prayer and I don't want to go on to something else. I need to stick in prayer for these three weeks, the 21 days. And I got my own agenda and God's saying, read the next section. And I'm going, no, because I can't. I got to, you know, I got to, and he's saying, read the next section. <laughs> so finally, you know, adult dunce that I am, I read the next section. 
And let me read it to you. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Who was he talking about right here? Who has great confidence in themselves and scorns everyone else? In the, in the story we are in right now. The Pharisees. The Pharisees are trusting themselves. And he makes that clear in the thing. But always remember, the disciples are watching him talk to the Pharisees. Now watch. Two men went into a temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. Right there, I, as soon as I read that first section, I went, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, this is about prayer, and obviously you had it all lined up. You were teaching them, you're teaching me. So, okay, prayer, I got it. The two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Watch an irony here. As Christians, the way when we read that, we think about it, and the way that it's usually preached, is you're not like that Pharisee because you know better than to get into works. You know that you were saved by grace. And so you're the one that's on the right side of this prayer. You're praying the right way, right? But here's the irony of that statement. As soon as you put yourself on the right side of this story, you're on the wrong side. As soon as you put yourself on the right side of this story, you're wrong. <laughs> Do you see it? The truth is, the heart of the story, the whole point of it is, this moment right here, this is the one that flashed in me that was the speed bump as we talk about. This is the thing where God just changed everything and just dropped the whole sermon in my heart in a matter of minutes. The tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. He isn't right. He knows he's not right. Let me show you how this works out. Let me show you what God did to me. We're in this experience of 21 days of prayer. Now, two things have been happening, particularly in the first week before this revelation. Two things were happening. Now, only one is. But two things were happening, and the first one is awesome. The second one, eh. The first one is, is every single time, I put it in my phone, and it's Cortana, so it links up with my Windows and my phone, and if you have Mac, then it does it with reminders. And it'll do your phone and your thing. So whether you're at your computer or whether you're at your phone, whatever, at the, at the, I do 6, 30, 12, and 6 o'clock, morning, noon, and night. And as soon as I see it, I don't care what I'm doing. I literally was at a restaurant with some people at 6.30 on Saturday morning, and I stopped and prayed. So you tell me how much I'm praying. Because I want to tell you how much I'm praying. I'm telling you, as soon I just, whatever I'm doing, I stop, and I walk into his presence, and I just start praying for this thing that God, that I need to be rescued from. And I'm telling you, I enter right into his presence. I mean, just immediately, overwhelmingly, I walk into his glory and I'm sitting there in his presence pleading like the widow, 
and doing this other thing that this guy's doing. Where what I'm doing is, is there's no way I can get out of it. I'm about to tell you what it is, and I don't want to, so I'm going to avoid it as much as I can. But, but the bottom line is, is I'm begging, begging God. And as soon as I beg God, he's there. Now, I always end with thanking him, because I know who he is. But I'm in his presence immediately. But there's this thing in my life. I need you to understand what I mean when I say what I'm doing in this. Because the nature of the thing that's in my life is something that literally what it feels like when I'm going to prayer is what David said when he said, Save me, O God, for the floodwaters are up to my neck. Deeper and deeper I sink into the mire. I can't find a foothold. I'm in deep water and the floods overwhelm me. I am exhausted from crying for help. My throat is parched. My eyes are swollen with weeping, waiting for my God to help me. I want to tell you that the thing, I'm going to tell you what the thing is that's been bothering me, but I have to just tell you something first because this is important. I don't want to tell you this crap. You have to know this. This is embarrassing. I'm wrong. By the way, it's not a sexual sin, so those of you who are holding your breath, you don't have to. I'm not going to confess anything that will get me fired, although maybe. But I just determined when I first got into pastoring that that meant I was going to have to live a glasshouse life, meaning that every single thing that was happening in me I was going to have to be transparent about because... I have these two different images of what it is to be a pastor. And the first one is walking into this incredibly beautiful church where the doors are not under repair. The lawns are perfect. The parking lot is perfect. The people are perfect. The dressing is perfect. The pastor is perfect. The pastor's hair is perfect. The pastor isn't fat. The pastor wears a suit and it's perfect. I'm behind a perfect podium and with a perfect choir. And everything is so perfect. And the way that he speaks is perfect. And he never fails to finish a sentence or a thought. And he never interrupts himself in the middle of what he's saying. And he never stumbles on a word. And he just, what's that? <laughs> and always finishes on time. Oh my God. <laughs> Thank you. I love you so much. I love this body so much. But what I decided was, is I just have this image of there's being somebody in that congregation who looks up at all this perfection. And they say to themselves, isn't that person preaching so wonderful? I could never do what they do. And I think to myself instead that what I want to be is the person who isn't on a platform, but who's down here. And I ask you not to call me pastor. And I ask you to understand that I'm just trying to get through this like you are. And I'm trying to do it transparently, transparently so that as I really seek the Lord and I learn things, I can pass them on to you. So that somebody who would be sitting in there saying, if that fat slob can do that, maybe I can too. Okay. Well, it gets worse. It gets worse. But do you see what I'm doing? Do you see what I'm saying? And I think that this is important. So... Okay, so just have grace for me, okay? The thing that's in my life that I am embarrassed about horribly is a decision that I made regarding our children in college. And there was a reason why I made it. 
uh, and there was, a, there was a plan behind it. And the, the plan was, is that one day I will inherit some money, not nearly as much as it was going to be at one point in time, but I will inherit some money, and it should be enough to have paid off whatever I incurred in student loan debt. But that was probably, at the time that we made that decision, it was at least 20 years. My parents were older than me, but in better health than me. And so there was no reason for me to think that, and I literally said when we were making the decision, I said, I'm going to make a decision that is going to put us in indentured servitude until somehow we can pay it back. And maybe it never gets paid back and we die. But I'm going to put us in a situation that's going to cost us all the time. Now, now let me make it clear. I don't think, I don't want anybody to make this decision. If you walked into my office and say, how should I do college? I would not tell you this story because I wouldn't want you to think it was a good idea. Okay? I think there's a lot of people that have said to their kids, work hard, study, get scholarships, go to schools that are more affordable. This is good stuff. Parents that have saved money. We had some money, by the way, but it just exhausted quickly, but we had quite a lot. And even then it exhausted quickly because of the mess that has become higher education. It's ridiculous. And we're the last generation that will be under debt because of this, no matter what we have to do about it, because it's just unsustainable the way it is right now. But there's a lot of people that are still getting through it by making decisions, making sacrifices, saying you can't go to any college you want to go to. You need to go to a college that's affordable, that, that makes sense. And you're going to get a great education there because it's not. And the truth is you do get a great education there. So I, I just need you to understand. I didn't think that people who were doing that with their kids were doing something less than I was. I think they were doing something more than I was. I was doing something that even at the time I was doing it, I was, is it really good for my kids to not work when they're in college? Maybe they should be working and paying for part of this and, and getting their own scholarships and doing that kind of stuff. It was just something that I did, and I'm not saying it was the right thing to do. Does everybody get that? So I'm not advising anybody to do it, but it ended up, that decision ended up with what are now hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to the point that we could have bought a house with it in old Bellevue. And I, I mean like 10 years ago Bellevue because in today's Bellevue you can't buy it no matter what. Okay? But it's, it's a lot of money. And it's so much money and it's such a, such a huge hill. I don't even think about it most of the time. It's just this crushing weight and burden on me. What am I going to do with this? And I'm watching... You know, are we going to have any ability to retire ever? Are we going to have, there's this, and, and the decisions that we make in our life for sacrifice and, and to not do things and not be able to do things that we're watching our friends do and we can't go do with them and so on because we can't afford it and all this kind of stuff. And now I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I made this decision. I'm not looking for your pity, okay? What I'm looking for is I want you to understand that I have this enormous, gigantic weight on my shoulder that makes me feel like, save me, oh God, for the floodwaters are up to my neck. Deeper and deeper, I sink into the mire. I can't find a foothold. I'm in deep water and the floods overwhelm me. I am exhausted from crying out for help. My throat is parched. My eyes are swollen with weeping, waiting for my God to help me. I completely understand every single part of that. Now, when I have that alarm go off and I have this moment to pray, I'm not, I don't even know if I've prayed a minute at any one period in time in this. What I can tell you is I walk in with that spirit. I let the fullness and the gravity of it hit me. I let the despair of it hit me. I let the hopelessness of it hit me. I let the inability for me to, not to say that I can't be making all kinds of decisions to work it out. Plenty of people work them out of bigger holes than I'm in. 
okay? But the bottom line is, is there is that thing that's there. And when I walk in there and ask him to deliver me, I'm walking in there asking him to deliver me. And when I walk in there in that spirit, like the man, like the tax collector, I'm saying I'm an idiot and all that other things, but I'm just asking him for mercy. And when I walk in there, what I'm finding is a God who is coming to me and surrounding me with his arms. He is bringing me in close. He's loving me. He's not judging me. He's bringing me in close immediately to where I know that my prayers are being heard. I know that I'm in his presence. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't care what's going to happen. I'm in his presence. I'm being held by him. Do you see it? And I do think I have to work on faith. Okay? But the point is, I told you there's two things that are happening. In that first week before I got the revelation I'm preaching to you right now, in that first week, there was a second thing that came into my head too, which some of you may have some familiarity with, and you may not know that I'm a person that deals with this too. Because most people, I think, when you look at me, think he's pretty confident, he's got his act together, he's got it dialed in. But the truth of the matter is, is that when I was praying this thing and I was first going in there, I would go into his presence in deep need and despair and pray to him, and then there would be a whisper in my ear, which I knew to be Satan from the very beginning. And it would say things like this to me. You're just getting what you deserve. You've always made decisions like this. They're poor decisions, and you're just getting what you deserve. Just buck up and take it. Or how about this? Others sacrificed, you're just trying to take the easy way. You're just trying to have your cake and eat it too. How about this one? If God were to do this for you, you just end up right back in debt. God would deliver you and you'd still find some way to get back into a mess. Anybody? Satan certainly never said that to anybody else in here in any way. You have to pay this back so that you'll learn to never do it again. Which is to say, you just have to sacrifice more. Now, I have to tell you, I know God well enough, and I'm mature enough, that I knew as soon as I heard those whispers that, that they were from Satan, but understand something about the things that are from Satan. They're true. Not all of them. And something about them is always fatally false. But every single one of those things is true. That's why it hits me. That's why those fiery darts don't get quenched by a shield of faith. They end up hitting me and taking root, and they burn me up. You hear it? But there is supposed to be a shield of faith. There's supposed to be something else that I'm doing, and this is the thing. I'm sitting out there on my walk, and I'm... And I'm asking the Lord what he wants to say to us this week. And all of a sudden, he brings flooding in all at once the story of this tax collector. Vijay's incredible sermon, the revelation about marrying your faith with his promise. I'm going to take it one step further. Don't just marry your faith to his promise. Marry him to him. Who he is. Who is he? He is good, good, so good. That's why I said the worship that we were doing is the sermon. He is good, good, so good. 
He is merciful. He is loving. In fact, all of a sudden, realizing I can't get there, emptying myself, starting to trust him, his promises and him, no weapon formed against me will prosper. This is an attack from the pit of hell. All of this. As I married that, I suddenly got this revelation. The tax collector's focus was not on himself. Not on what he had done to deserve what was happening to him, like the Pharisee did. But it wasn't even on what he'd done to not deserve it. Because he said, I'm a sinner. But he didn't say, that disqualifies me from my merciful God. He said, I'm a sinner. He owned his sin. He owned what was true and the things that Satan was whispering in his ear. And I always say the best way to fight Satan is not to disagree with him. It's to agree with him. Now, don't get that wrong. It's to agree with the things that he's saying that are true and understand that God is nonetheless bigger and different than the lie that he's trying to put into you, which is that you're worthless and that you'll always be in bondage and that you'll just have to wander around in the wilderness hopeless, carrying this enormous burden. See it? And all of a sudden, I realized that what that tax collector was doing was his focus was on God. Merciful, loving, caring, forgiving, delivering God. Here's the way God himself says he is. He puts Moses in the cleft of the rock when Moses realizes there's more to you than I know. Show me who you really are. And he says, you can't live but I will do something. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. I'll put my hand over that cleft and I'll walk by you and I'll tell you my name and then I'll let you glimpse me for just a moment. And here's the name that he proclaimed. Yahweh the Lord, God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. He goes on to say, I don't just erase the sin. I just didn't want to take the time to explain it. But he goes on, the rest of his name is not saying, it's not contradicting what he said in the first part. He's just saying, it takes Christ to cover your sin. I don't just blink at it. It gets paid for. It's just that I'm the one that pays for it. That's what the second half means. But here's what happened to me. I realized in these 21 days of prayer that as I was going to him, and I was falling into his presence so magnificently and quickly that the reason why was because I wasn't thinking about myself and what I did to deserve it or didn't do or how I could be better or anything about me at all. I erased myself from the equation completely. And all I did was I came to him with the cry of my heart, the thing that I needed mercy for because I am a sinner and I am a screw up. But I got a good God. Not just a good God, a fantastic God, a glorious God who loves me and is crazy about me and who desires to set me free, even to bring me into the promise. He whom the Son is set free is free indeed. Here's what I want you to do right now. We're going to do a ministry time. I told you that we weren't going to do offering and all that stuff at the end, and here's what I want you to do. We're going to be playing some music up here, just a little background. And what I want you to do is, is when you're ready, I want you to grab your cup in front of you. There's two cups, and we would normally take communion together. We're not doing that today. 
if you're coming forward, I want you to bring your cup forward. Would you do me a favor? Please be careful so we don't have to clean up a bunch of grape juice up here. But please bring that cup, that communion cup forward. And I want you to spend some time at the altar here. Or feel free to do that at your chairs. But I want you to spend some real time with God in this vein. I want you to fly. I want you to get a hold of a good God that makes you fly. <laughs> yeah? Is that a little scary? Yeah. But you know what? It's cool. The places that God will take you are magnificent. I wanted to, I didn't have time to do it, but I wanted to freeze it right there. So just take it right there, right there on that freeze right there. And what I wanted to take you to was Yahweh, the Lord, God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness, lavishing unfailing love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. I want you to come and encounter who he really is. Get rid of yourself. You know who you are? Own it. But get rid of it. And let's try focusing just simply and powerfully on him. Lord, in Jesus' name, <laughs> your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. God, you come and you take and you minister. You touch hearts and you deliver people from in Jesus' holy and most magnificent name. God, even though we only have seven days left, let us start entering in magnificently, beautifully to who you are. Not all those other things that would be whispered in our ear, but to who you are. In Jesus' name. Thank you. When you're done, please be careful of other people when they're praying up here and praying in their seats and just go ahead and head out to the lobby.